0: Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. I'm joined today by Bruce Daisley, the best-selling author and self-described workplace enthusiast who's been called one of the UK's leading workfluencers. After 12 years running Twitter in Europe and YouTube in the UK, Bruce has turned his full-time attention to writing and speaking about one of the topics of our time, the modern workplace. His first book, The Joy of Work, was the Sunday Times number one business bestseller and draws on the experiences of psychologists, neuroscientists, and workplace experts to understand how we can improve our jobs. It was to go on to inspire a US edition and his podcast eat sleep work repeat now he's turned his attention to the topic of resilience in fortitude unlocking the secrets of inner strength it seeks to disprove the myth that only extraordinary people are successful and demonstrates how we can draw on those around us to empower ourselves and build our inner strength bruce welcome to change makers thank you so much lovely to chat to you again well listen I, I last time we spoke you were you were sort of just just working on on book one now here we are with two in and it's a great read i really enjoyed reading it let's start with I suppose I've got two quotes I wouldn't mind sort of pitching to you and for you to pick up. Let, let's start with never in the history of resilience has someone become more resilient by being told, be more resilient.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look, we're surrounded by this. You know, as we record this, it's exam time and one of the things you always hear around exam time especially when the exam results have gone down as much as they have this year is everyone has got these this advice for young people that they need to be more resilient mm. or workplaces are filled with resilience training in fact one of the challenges for me as I was writing my writing this book dedicating 2 years of my life to it everyone I told that I was writing a book about resilience uh, more more often than i would like they rolled their eyes and said oh my god you know people talk about resilience so much at my work or a friend i know who works in the nhs she said if you turn up here talking about resilience someone will thump you <laughs> so so like we're surrounded with this explosion <laughs> of resilience chat and i guess that was part of what inspired me to start exploring it really yeah and and i suppose
0: it's also why you didn't call it resilience and you you went on to call it fortitude because you talk about this as being the strength that we draw from feeling in close synchrony with those around us from feeling part of something meaningful that is bigger than us. I thought that was a really lovely description, but I suppose...
1: Take us on the journey from resilience to fortitude and what it means to you. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've read countless books where someone capitalises the word that they're using and you almost see the TM sign at the end of it. And it feels like, Mm. oh, my God, someone is trying to create some intellectual property. And I really, I mean, I I persist in using the word resilience throughout the book, but I I just use fortitude merely as an attempt to differentiate it, because if we are weary about all of of this resilience chat and the resilience idea has been so misappropriated and and stolen by other people that maybe it has become a degree toxic, then I see fortitude as very much a synonym. And I I guess, you know, it's that weariness that makes a lot of people very cautious that they feel they've heard all all of this before. You know, there was a review last week in the Financial Times that said that the book will appeal to anyone who's had a boss lecturing them about the importance of resilience or they've Mm. been forced to turn up to a lunchtime seminar. On resilience that uh, I think it's that weariness that forced my reappraisal, and what you discover is that a lot of the chat about resilience really heavily rests on, or oh, a lot of the solutions for it really rests on the fact that this incredible demand for training turned up. And what you found was that the world's leading psychologists and let's rewind the clock. So this is 20 years ago. So these are people who were in the, their prime, maybe at the end of the Reagan era, the sort of Clinton era, and they were American. And what mm. you get is you get a very Reaganite version, a solution to resilience that is focused on individualism, very much focused... Focused on the American dream. And it's the reason that a lot of us see this resilience training seeming to instruct us to activate this beast mode, this, this sort of superhero mode within. Yes. Ourselves.
0: I was, was gonna say, I mean, it is almost like releasing the, the inner hero, isn't it? I mean, and you know, you, you do take aim at Martin Seligman, the, the, the American psychologist, I suppose is as at that. At the heart of this this whole self help industry, but what one read I think of of fortitude is is about it's almost like the case for the collective, isn't it? And, and collectivism. I mean, there's a very persuasive part towards the end of the book. I've been talking to Ed Tyler, our producer, about oh, before you got on about. Jurgen Klopp and and his uh, and his football leadership style, and then we were saying, ah, oh, but what about what about what about Alex Ferguson? What about Mourinho in his high, in his heydays? All those sorts of things. I suppose through the lens of
1: football, then, Bruce, give us the case for the collective. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I guess the, the the other evidence I would give you before we go into a celebration of, of King Jürgen is the fact that we get evidence of this the the collective strength, the fact that resilience is the strength that others give us, imbuing us. We see evidence of it all over the place. There's a wonderful book by a woman called Re- Rebecca Solnit who spends a lot of time going through eight or nine natural disasters, mm. and what you find about natural disasters and sometimes man-made disasters she looks at as well. What you find is that there's an expectation probably informed by Hollywood films that natural disasters are like raging inferno, that you have hundreds of people at the base of the burning buildings running with their arms flailing in the air, screaming. And what you discover is that actual, when you explore natural disasters, they don't have anything close to that. They often have this sense of remarkable community. There are The, the aggregation of old identities have been knocked down. No one knows if that was an investment banker or the post boy. And so old identities are swept away and you find this new collective identity of we are all survivors of this Hmm. disaster seems to take hold, but also fill people with just this shared experience. You witness it in natural disasters, you witness it in you know, things like 9-11. It's really interesting, actually, comparing and contrasting those who had a collective experience of something like 9-11 and those who had an individualistic experience, firefighters, police officers. When surveyors went back and asked firefighters and people who had shared experience about their experience of 9-11, albeit that there might be injurious health consequences from smoke inhalation or whatever, the, the people demonstrated remarkable ability to bounce back back and it's mm. the people who found themselves maybe isolated amongst their friendship group that they'd survived. And, you know, this very famous case of the, the woman, the, the the dust lady, who was um, this, I think, 20 something uh, black woman who was photographed in a very vivid image of the the nine eleven disaster. And she spent the subsequent 10 years, 15 years, really dealing with the fact that she was dealing with that trauma on her own. She fell into alcoholism, drug dependency, and she passed away at the age of 41. And, you know, to compare and contrast and there's of course the danger of survivors bias by cherry picking examples but it's illustrative of the broad theme that you get that when people find that their experience is collective they seem to unlock a unexpected strength who could, who amongst us actually could find themselves not looking at the people of Ukraine either the well, women who used to have to flee the men who have to take up arms and we look at it and we go I'm not sure I could do that I'm not you, sure you
0: You are very skillfully deferring our Jurgen Klopp moment because I'm going to have to pick <laughs> (laughs) you up on that. I mean, it's because I suppose some people listening might say, oh, yeah, okay, right. So I get that. And Ukraine. But what, you know, isn't, isn't President Zelensky sort of Britain's Winston Churchill, if the Russians had had him in the first 24 hours as they had planned with their paratroopers, then wouldn't the nation have collapsed? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of a lot made of, I suppose, heroic leadership, which by its nature, focuses on the individual. What do you make of that? I mean, are you
1: fine with that? Or, or do you actually think, well, actually, that's the whole problem? Yeah, I would disagree with your your conclusion of that. I would say that the strength that he's demonstrated is this really visceral sense that we're all in it together. And witness some of those moments from the first couple of days of the conflict, where he surrounded himself with his cabinet and he said, I'm here that's mm. the finance minister, that's the interiors minister, we are all here. And it, what it does is it says, we're all in this together. And what you might say, actually, about, you know, not to delve too heavily into politics, but what you might say about the fall of Prime Minister Boris Johnson is that the moment the moment that the game was up for him was when he no longer looked like one of us. And now he looked like one of them. He looked like a person to whom the rules did not apply. And we lost that shared sense that we were all in it together. So mm. I, I think, you know, albeit there are are moments of heroic leadership in the ukraine story normally they are what you'd call social identity leadership it's someone saying i am part of you I- i'll tell you something i know you're
0: no fan of boris because the last time i interviewed you on a tv show you were telling me why why twitter was not the medium for boris johnson because it was not about bob quips and if it was it would have been it would have been the perfect medium for him but anyway <laughs> another interview, another time. But I suppose let's not miss that the football. I mean, I'm sure that the football fans will want us to go into the sort of the secrets of, of Liverpool's success. I suppose it's the there's no I in team, isn't it? Is, is that is is that the sort of the, the humility? I mean, you pick it up in, in the book. I mean, I thought you captured the personality of, of Klopp really well, actually, in terms of the as being really an embodiment of what of what a kind of a of what Fortitude was all
1: about. I spent two years sending copies, various drafts of the book up to Jürgen, hoping that I could get an endorsement by the great man. Uh, yeah, I, I don't necessarily consider myself an active football fan. I'm more of a tennis fan, to be honest. But I, I'm certainly a clopite. I, I find he's, I think, you know, he transcends the sport in the sense that he's just got this gregarious ability that mm. it's impossible not to be lit up by. And there's some beautiful stories in his history that seem to back that up. When he was at his previous club, he said to an organiser there, he said, we need to move from this sense of me to this sense of we we need to try and build this sense that we're all in this together this collective sense actually when he um when he came to liverpool one of his first acts was to learn the name of everyone at their training ground and he called the players into the the press conference room and one by one he introduced them by their names at the front he said this is barbara who runs the food this is jack who runs the the kit we we refer to each other by our first names here and what he does i guess the there's these rippling circles of of ness of we where of course the team is first and foremost the, the most important sense of us but also then there's the reserve players and then these the support staff mm. and then there's the families <clears throat> and it's just about trying to you know when he was first manager he recognised that a lot of the supporters were leaving games early and so he said right from now on we, put, we come out and we applaud the fans after the game to try and ensure that there was a sense that part of your money was the experience that was the whole thing and the crowd was part of this us as well so mm. I think he really powerfully embodies what this what this fortitude model well, of collectiveness is, is about well and you may not have got Jürgen
0: Klopp but you did get one of England's great footballers on your dust cover Gary Lineker who said that resilience about uh, is about all of us being stronger than any of us which I think sums up exactly what you just said
1: yeah I punched the air when when Gary wrote that because <laughs> I just think it's a good it's an example of someone who's you know, an intelligent, an intelligent commentator who's yeah you know, not afraid to sort of have an opinion on things. Well, you've got some awesome, awesome uh, advocates for the
0: for the book as readers, readers are going to find out. But let, let's go to where the book starts, because it, it started with a, a very specific and horrific experience in, in Beirut in the summer of, of 2020. Pick up the story for us, Bruce.
1: Yeah, I've just returned actually from Beirut. So we, we go there frequently. My partner's Lebanese. But two years ago on the 4th of August 2020, we were sitting, we'd been out for the day. We were sitting back at the apartment and the apartment, which is about sort of a couple of miles from, from where the explosion happened. But the, the biggest explosion in peacetime happened in Beirut. And it was a, a thousand tons of explosives that were left unattended in the, mm. in the port and by God, we, did we feel it i mean you know you, you you can't help but feel at times that you live a a sort of an an insulated and protected and costed life because this, you know, I'd never experienced an earthquake, but as it went on and it went on and it went on, you start, your anxiety increases. And the moment it finished, we we gathered, we all ran together to the middle of the apartment and all the windows blew in. Now we've tried to watch the videos of the explosion, try and work out what would we have have been experiencing at each stage. And the, the windows blowing in, I presume, is when oxygen was sucked in to feed the the explosion but um it was terrifying but the really mm. interesting thing is that that go to phrase appeared so in all the news coverage the next day it said and that night it said well if we know anything about the lebanese people they're resilient and you know the lebanese are famed for their resilience and the really interesting thing is that i was now given the opportunity to compare the the legend with the experience and no one in lebanon felt that their experience was resilient in fact you know people were like surely the world's going to help us now we we're on our knees; that they're already in the midst of a financial collapse. We're on our knees here. Surely the world will help. And all the coverage was, "Well, they're resilient," and that was it. No one helped. On. You know, yeah. there was no solution. And what you realise is, oh, okay. So what we're witnessing with this phrase "resilience" is something that has been silently politicised. It's been. It's an attempt to kind of say, "Never mind, you'll cope with it." And what? And, and it comes from that that Reaganite sense of. Individualism, where to some extent, if if you don't help and, and the person doesn't demonstrate resilience, the person the 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 person asked to provide help can say, well, I knew they weren't up did, to it. And you... if if they are able to respond, we we say, well, there you go, they were resilient. It sort of gives us a, a deniability to to the ask we've been given. Do, do you think that
0: resilience? ever did mean something. I mean, I'm wondering, has has the phrase been hollowed out in, in the recent past? Because the thing I, I was thinking about is that you, you've talked about that, that experience in 2020, tragically killed 218 people. I interviewed Ryan Crocker, who was the US ambassador to the Lebanon in 1983, when the embassy bomb brought the whole building out. He, he was he was dragged out of the ruins along with with many of, of his colleagues and you know for, for him I think you know the resilience to go on meant something very personal and meant something you know that he described it I, I just dug out what he said you know he talked about the the import the pursuit of public service he said I owe it to, to the country I owe it to the taxpayer to go on almost this sense of that actually once upon a time I suppose this word resilience did mean something about the collective I, I don't know whether you would identify with that or, or do you just- I think it's always been the wrong word to describe what you're what you're what you're talking about
1: I still think it's an incredibly meaningful word you know witness to people in Ukraine witness to people but I just think it's been misappropriated and what you discover is that it, it's been used for a bit of victim blaming because you know we we don't necessarily see the circumstance that someone's in, but we see the the demand of them that they demonstrate this bounce back ability, that this mm-hmm. ability to to recover from anything. And and if you look at examples of when resilience is used, you know the quite often we're we're asking people who are really on their knees to be resilient. You know we're not necessarily perceiving the situation they find themselves in. You know in the U.S. the people of F- uh, Flint. Michigan had this civic incompetence that that meant that for for a short while they were drinking lead polluted water and then after that they they had no drinking water for 10 years i think it's only just now been uh, resolved and throughout they were told well you need to be resilient it's like okay but yeah that seems like you're blaming them for something that's out of their control. You're saying that they need to get on with it. They need to cope. And what you end up thinking is that when someone tells you to be resilient or when someone demands resilience, you've got a question, why are they trying to silence someone? Why are they trying mm-hmm. to to take the attention away from the lived experience? There was a really good example by someone, uh, a psychologist who came to me, uh, or I came to, and a lot of the work in the book is based on his his work by a guy called Professor Alex Haslam. And he told me about a situation that involved an NHS trust, the, the West Dorset Hospitals um, Trust. And they were told in around 2008, I think, that they, had, they were given by the health and safety executive, they were given a, a, an improvement notice. They needed to reduce the stress situation that their employees were receiving. And their first instinct was to say, well, OK, The stress, okay, might be one thing, but it's the clearly the issue we're dealing with is the people here aren't resilient enough. And they set about implementing resilience training. Now, this uh, misdirection, this is what a lot of people are experiencing in, in their workplaces right now. They are suffering from burnout. And the corporate response to it is to invite everyone to a resilience webinar. You know, it's going to be from one till two on Thursday. Come along to this resilience webinar. And it's no wonder then when I started talking about resilience, people are like, oh, my God, I've been through this movie before. This is of zero value to me. So I think, Uh, well, what I want to do is I want to come
0: on to the practical tips. But before that, I'm sort of. Part of me thinking, okay, I I see it. I see collective action is is the story of this summer. But then I'm thinking about the messenger breeze, because, you know, you you've come from the technology world where you could say that rampant individualism has brought us. The Steve Jobs, the Elon Musk, your old boss Jack Dorsey, but many of these these characters who are, I suppose, the case studies in exceptionalism, um, and of course have created these sort of you know epoch changing businesses. And I, I suppose before you turn your back on individualism, w- would you
1: would you have anything to say in its favour? I'm not remotely trying to espouse anything that's that's bigger than understanding that we draw strength from the groups we feel part of. I'm not trying to propose that there's a collectivist plan that's trying to bring about the running of the economy or anything like that, far from it. Uh, so, you know, I celebrate I celebrate the genius of incredible perceptive individuals as much as anyone. And, you know, I'm in awe of their work and I, I love using their products. So I'm not necessarily seeking to, to do down or to diminish the achievement of individuals. What I am saying though, is that as someone said in some of the research, they said, you can't be resilient on your own, can you? Mm. And it's such a powerful phrase that once you recognize it you go oh this is right this is why actually there are moments and look it's very timely for this moment that we're in where a lot of us are working from home and the amount of us who report having a best friend at work is the lowest level it's ever been before for people who work in a hybrid environment. Seventeen percent mm-hmm. of hybrid workers report having a best friend at work. So that sense that we that protective cloak that having friends at work seemed to give us, gift us, that's been stripped from us in a lot of ways. And I think that's the critical thing. So, and, you know, I remain and, in awe of, of and, genius and, creators.
0: And I and I'm with you on that, on that side, by the way. What what I'm what I'm thinking about is is that, you know, you, you've you've said it a couple of times in this interview, and I've read it elsewhere about the sort of the, the Reaganite model. And of course, what you'll know is that in the States, the Reaganite model is seen as the inspiration that delivered entrepreneurship and the enterprising attitude. And that led to startups and this whole generation of, you know, whatever you, you think about entrepreneurs or not, and whether they're born or made. But but there is in in the states anyway a, a still this celebration of of the individual in terms of its this is how you get successful outcomes and I suppose in terms of somebody who has experienced both sides of the coin as a as an author who's questioning but also as a person that's been part of this extraordinary journey of these companies, what we draw out of it in the 2020s in terms of where do we go from here? Where, How do those tech entrepreneurs become more collectivist in attitude? How do they make sure that they are these new examples of fortitude then in terms of the as I, I suppose the the lessons that they have
1: potentially to teach us about business as this force for change, this this force for good. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything that I would say that is against the notion that genius people can achieve remarkable things. You know, one of the myths of Silicon Valley and one of the the wonderful bits of misdirection that they try to pretend is that we are in the presence of unearthly genius with with these creators. Because, Mm. and the the evidence I'll give you that maybe these people are far more human, you might imagine, is that very few of them achieve a second act. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, a a genius creator of Facebook, and shout out to to him for that. But, you know, everything else he's done since, he's bought from someone else. Everything else that Google has done since, pretty much since Google, they've bought from someone else. From Mm. their ad business to YouTube to, to to Android phones, to self-driving cars. They bought all of those things from other people. And Mm. if we were in the presence of unearthly talent, that we might expect them to be initiating dozens of different ideas. Elon Musk bought all of his big ideas that we know from other people. It's
0: such a good good point, by the way. I I remember a journalist friend of mine described those as second album issues. Yeah. He said, said, you know, it's it's like bands, isn't it? The true geniuses are the ones that can give you a second album,
1: not just the first. Or a second... Or a second book, Bruce, as you've done. <laughs> it's why I was so awed by, you know, uh, for, for me, I, I spent a lot of time working with Jack Dorsey. And, and you know, I, I I recognize he has strengths and weaknesses, but he was one of the very few that did go and create from scratch a second multi-billion dollar business when he mm-hmm. set up Square. So, you know, while Elon gets the credit for that, Elon bought all of his big businesses. He bought SpaceX, he bought Tesla from other people. So, you know, someone who can do it twice is such an exception. It definitely... Demonstrates that these people are far more human than we might
0: imagine. I suppose the other thing, though, that I'm thinking about is that you know I think about the attributes that these individuals are given: the, the positivity, the ambition, the sort of you know. And, and you and you saw this recently with the with the focus on on Elon Musk as this sort of like, you know Marmite character in in the kind of global narrative, and especially in the in the build up to would he or wouldn't he buy. Twitter or Manchester United or whoever else is looking at this particular time. But, but I suppose in terms of what you're pointing to, which is, feels like a more humane and a gentler model where actually we pull, you know, we go, I think Gordon Brown described it. What did he say? He said, every convoy is only as fast as its slowest ship. I mean, that was the way he described it. In terms of driving progress, making change happen, how does fortitude lead to that in a world where we're looking at 18% inflation and many, many great problems ahead of us? How does fortitude see us through in, in your telling of that story?
1: Well, number one, let's start at a micro level. I think, you know, if any organisation is thinking the people here, and that might be a school, it might be a, a workplace, it might be a family. If anyone is thinking, well, the people here seem to be less able to cope than we might have anticipated, or that we, from our position, we might have wanted them. I think if your first attempt to solve that is to, to think, I'm going to instruct people to be more resilient, back to mm. the, the quote you started with, never in the history of resilience has someone been resilient by being told to be more resilient. You might, say to yourself, well, rather than tell people to be more resilient, should I try to find a way for them to feel more resilient by feeling supported, by feeling defended? And I think, you know, this for me is a really important part. So schools, you know, schools are one of the biggest customers for resilience training, for for introducing resilience initiatives. And I would say that the evidence is there, but in a different place. There's some beautiful work by probably one of the world's leading researchers into Mm. teenage mental health. A woman called Jean Twenge, and Jean Twenge has written quite a lot. She she wrote an eye catching book called, uh, an eye catching article for the Atlantic uh, three or four years ago called "Have Smartphones Ruined a Generation?" And so, you know, it's pretty evident she she thinks technology is partly to blame. But one of the things that she was confounded by during the pandemic, her the first cut of data that she she did in the very, very start of the pandemic. So she she runs a little bit of a time lag and she's only just published this. But it's a really interesting counterpoint. She was astounded by the findings because she'd expected, as we all heard as the pandemic went on, that there was a mental health crisis, that there, there was a, a, a crisis of depression that was about to, a tsunami of depression that was about to crash over us. And what she discovered is in those first weird six, eight weeks of the pandemic, you remember them when you were sort of queuing to get into to buy a pack of pasta you were you were lining up at outside stores in a the manner that you'd only imagined in the Soviet Union in the Mm -hmm. 1970s. And we were sort of doing those things. And what she discovered was in that first flush of the pandemic, actually the the resilience of teenagers went up. Why? Because they were having a family meal with their family for the first time, probably in their lifetimes. And when we feel part of something, when we feel plugged in, oh, I'm part of a family, it enriches our sense of strength. Now, it's so wonderful to see someone who, really writes off teenagers recognizing that actually she was surprised by this this strength that they were demonstrating but I think it gives you a really clear pointer to how potent and how strong mm. the evidence is for this well and I have to say in the book I think when
0: you're talking about things like adverse childhood experiences and a scores and and actually how fortitude develops I think it's 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 such an interesting read and and actually it feels it feels like you know like a lot of this book is that Addressable. It feels like there are things that society can do um to make the changes. So that because I, I think the thing about resilience as a as a phrase is it feels like a, a long way up, doesn't mm. it? So it says very hard to get hold of. Whereas fortitude feels like the sort of thing that you can encourage in communities. And and, and you've just given a, a good working example about about the first days of, of the pandemic. Your experiences also show fortitude though, Bruce, in terms of I suppose you've got a good job. I mean, not only a good Good job, a great job. Some would argue one of the biggest jobs you could hope to get in in tech, certainly in this side of 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 the Atlantic. And 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 you've turned your back on it to go in to do things that clearly you're passionate about: the future of the workplace, actually exploring ideas. I, I wrote, co-authored a book called Mission, and the thing that I, I always felt was that I learned a lot about myself through the very act of writing. What, what have you learned about yourself since you left Twitter?
1: Yeah, most definitely. the The act of trying to coherently get your words down on a page is... Yeah, it's it's a, a slightly meditative and it's it forces you to really examine yourself. You know, it's, it's a, a sort of an exhausting but fascinating process. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, when I left Twitter, I was partly frazzled by a decade or so of late night evening calls into mm. Californian time zones and lots of international travel that is deeply unappealing when you find yourself getting up for an Uber at three in the morning or, you know, find yourself sort of on a flight to the Middle East on a Saturday morning. You know, you you find these things are, They they lose their appeal. So, yeah, I, I was already doing a podcast about workplace culture. I was obsessed with it. I am always intrigued by the conversations that I have with people about their workplace culture. And I was thinking, oh, wow, this is this is so fascinating that, you know, someone will tell me in intricate detail about the toxic work environment that they're working in. It's like, oh wow, I'd love to understand that a bit more, but I've got a full-time job. Or someone would tell me, Oh, our boss has done this and we were all inspired by it. It's like, okay, I'd love to know more about that. So it, I think what I thought was the thing that's always interested me, and it's a position of privilege, albeit that you know I, I wasn't born into any particular privilege, but a position of privilege to, to end where I did. I thought, you know, the opportunity to have a bit of curiosity and and to feel like you know i'm I'm talking at an organization tomorrow about workplace culture. And genuinely, I feel like I know that, 10% of what there is to know about workplace culture. And I spend all day, every day thinking mm. about it, reading about it. And I feel like I know barely anything about it. So to have that sense of learning and discovery I, I is the greatest gift. And you know that, that's what was appealing about walking away from a big tech firm.
0: So presumably you're not feeling comfortable about the workfluencer mantle that people, people attribute to you. But I suppose in the world of work, last question, because we're, we're sadly almost out of time, but this is i remember interviewing you where we were talking about just the i suppose the opening gambits of things that were to go on to be called the great resignation the kind of the battle of the generations whatever you might call it but a but a but a whole series of major sort of flare-ups that that were to go on to become emblematic of the world of work Looking at it in the summer of 2022, how do you feel about that future? Do you you feel feel optimistic or pessimistic about it or full of fortitude?
1: Yeah, incredibly pessimistic, but broadly because I think that we're looking at societal dysfunction that is unsustainable. You know, if you look at some of the mechanics of people entering the workforce now, Gen Gen Zs, the the thing that they're presented with is the average cost of property in the UK is eight times salary. In London, it's eleven times salary. In addition, the government in the last twelve months has increased the amount of time that student loans will be held over someone's head by an additional ten years. So most people are presented now with, if they do want to earn enough money to own property, which you know used to be what we regarded as a fundamental right, then mm. they need to first pay off their growing student loans. And, and secondly, they need to be hit by a once in a lifetime windfall. And so as a consequence of that, I just don't see that as a functioning society. Now, if I was going to say, let me make you an alternative case, we're in a situation right now where there the, was evidence published last week that said that the average worker is working in the office one and a half days a week. And we're presented with a huge opportunity to to think about how we use the space that we've got. We've got this incredible shortage of property. Mm. But if we were to say, OK, let's... We, we can't repurpose a lot of office buildings. You know, you can't, you can't turn the floor plate of Canary Wharf into flats because there's no light well down the middle of it. So, you know, a lot of commercial real estate can't be easily repurposed. But if we said that the government was going to issue bonds and turn our city centres into maybe loft living dwellings where 20-somethings could own a one-bedroom flat that's part of a building that's got facilities in it, and we tried to re-engineer our cities, I think it could be, number one, the source of great financial prosperity but also could, could create a more functioning society. We're at the, the threshold of huge opportunity. And I think right now, I don't see from any political party any vision to say, let's think holistically about how we can get ourselves out of this, this societal dysfunction and how we can achieve something that will re-energise the next 50 years.
0: Love that idea, Bruce, about, about reusing the property. I mean, maybe the third age of Bruce Daisley is yet to happen because we've seen the technologists, we've seen the author... But are we seeing Mayor Daisley um, uh, <laughs> as, as yet to come? Who knows? That might well happen. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you so much for having me. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm, Seven Hills, and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack, and it's written and performed by the brilliant B.T. Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works, and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?